This morning, I want to think about an aspect of God and Jesus, which I think is somewhat neglected, especially, I think, by the Christian church, the Protestant church in the West. I think about the answer that you might have to this question. What does Jesus want for your life? What does Jesus want you to do or participate in? And oftentimes as we would answer that question, we would go to a list of don'ts. I remember there was a church that I would go to on Wednesday nights when I was a grad student in Abilene, Texas, and I'll try to do my best Texas drawl here. And the preacher would get up and he would say, somehow in almost every sermon, he'd say, don't drink or chew or associate with girls who do. And I don't know if that was a major problem. I haven't run across a whole lot of girls that chew. I mean, I'm sure there are some, but I think it's more of a guy problem than a girl problem, perhaps, so that he would say that. And it was always interesting to me because I was learning how to preach. And I was like, how'd you get that out of Psalm 23? I don't even know like where, where that came from. And he would almost always conclude his sermon by, I know what you're doing. Stop doing it. And that was kind of how, how he would say that. And we always be like, man, what's everybody else doing in here? Because I think I'm doing doing all right. And so oftentimes the message of Christianity can be that like, okay, here's this list of don'ts. Here's all these things that, that you don't, that you just can't participate in and all these like walls you have to put up in your life and don't be around people who are like that, even though Jesus was often around people who were like that. But we would think about it in those terms. But it's fascinating when you see the Old Testament and into the New Testament, a thread that I think is, is really vital and super important for us to contemplate and understand that God's spirit would lead us to a certain way. So in Psalm chapter 47, or verse seven, the passage reads, it's a concluding thought about hating wickedness, then therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now think about that. That God has set you, God's spirit and presence has set you above your companions by anointing you with this oil of joy. God has separated you from other people who are living in your midst and in your time with this oil of joy. And this idea continues in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 61. As Jesus is prophesied about, this same line comes up. And actually in the book of Hebrews, later in the New Testament, is the author of Hebrews, and no one knows who wrote the book of Hebrews, but she was brilliant. And in Hebrews chapter one, verse nine, it says this, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. This was written about Jesus, and it's a way that we try to think. This is what the scriptures continually say, that you should have a certain joy in your life because of who your God is. This is who God has called you to be, to have this deep, sustaining joy. Can you say that about yourself? Because sometimes I think Christians can be really angry and upset and seem on edge, but this is what scripture consistently says. I've heard it said about this passage and then what it means for Jesus, that you could translate this idea to say that Jesus was the happiest person alive. Jesus was the happiest person alive. That's something that we need because our country has been at least working towards the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for 
people and not necessarily done it all that well historically. But I don't think we do it personally all that well either. One of the most popular classes at Harvard University right now, which you can actually watch on YouTube, is called The Secret of Happiness. There's a class at Stanford University for kids who are extremely smart because they got into Stanford called How to Make Friends because people don't really know how to make friends anymore. Some of the things that I would say are at the root of who we should be, the things that we would say, these are the things that help to lead us to a fulfilling life. We don't necessarily do all that well. And think about how Jesus is introduced. What John tells us is his first miracle. He turns water into wine. And the scriptures will tell you in that passage in John chapter 2 that it is about 180 gallons of wine. And when it's tasted, everyone says, wow. Now, usually... You put out the two-buck chuck later because everyone has their senses dulled a little bit. But you've brought out, like, the best stuff. Every once in a while, Mandy and I will spend $20 on a bottle of wine, and we're like, yeah, like, we are living large right now. And you've brought out the best stuff now. And what Jesus does in this scene is he rescues a dying party. Weddings would have lasted for at least a week during that time. And it's super significant for the groom, of course, but even more for the bride. Because in that society, women had virtually no role in that time and in that place. So if this woman would have had wine run out at her wedding, it would have been a source of shame for her entire life. Her one day that she had a bit of a, a glimmer of the spotlight would have been remembered forever as I remember that party where they ran out of wine. So Jesus like saves this dying party and he does it not just a little bit. He provides 180 gallons of the best stuff that those people have ever had. I don't know how you get from that to don't drink or chew or associate with girls who do. Doesn't that seem a bit odd? That this is what God is like? This is what Jesus is like? And John concludes this miracle by saying this, what Jesus did here in Canaan and Galilee was the first of the signs which revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What John says is this miracle reveals the glory of Jesus and connects that to the glory of God. And glory in the understanding of, of Hebrew just means weight. It means like this is who this person is. Think about what that means, that Jesus rescues this woman from embarrassment. He then creates a scene where people who would have left that party and gone on to get back to work or whatever it is they were going to get back to, they kept partying. This, John says, is what our God is like. I think for a minute about the best meal that you've ever had, and not just necessarily the food, but because of who it was that was gathered around that table. Maybe some longtime friends Maybe it was something that you were celebrating. 
for me, something that comes to mind about 10 years ago, my mom made a dinner for me for my birthday. And it, she made her famous French dip. If you haven't had it before, you'll have to have it after uh, quarantine is over. It's fantastic. It's my, my favorite thing. There's about 10 of my friends who were gathered there. And we were just telling stories around that table for a few hours, stories that I had never heard before. Someone brought up a hilarious story about this person who had an idea for a restaurant that was Titanic themed. And every hour it would flood. Like that was the Titanic themed restaurant. It's like, that sounds like a terrible idea. We're just having, having laughs, having a couple, a couple glasses of wine, not bottles, having a couple drinks and just enjoying the, the company. There was just so much joy around that table. And that's something that I remember when I think about Jesus saving that party, that there's something that happens when we just slow down, when we spend time with each other, when we tell some stories. What is that for you that you think of? That was a great time when my heart was filled with joy. We are made for that. Think about how Genesis chapter one opens up with God creating the world. And at every step, God says, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's not just okay. It's good. This is beautiful. God didn't have to make Niagara Falls. God didn't have to make the Grand Canyon. There's beauty in the world. There's joy that we can connect with. Jesus in his first the long sermon after he's given the little one in his hometown, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and the first word out of his mouth is blessed. And he begins the Beatitudes by blessing all these people that you wouldn't expect. And the word blessed there, some scholars have said it can translate as happy. Happy are you. Fulfilled are you. And he then blesses all these people who you wouldn't expect. And it's super interesting to read. And there's a whole sermon series on the Beatitudes. I've actually done that one before. Go look it up. It's really, really interesting to see that Jesus says like fulfilled are you happy? Are you when this is going on? And that doesn't mean that we don't experience hard things that we need to lament and, and pray about and really deeply consider. But one of the reasons why things are sad is because we recognize that this isn't the way we want the world to be. So when we experience brokenness and heartache, when things are difficult, I believe this is a subcategory of joy that we recognize that this isn't, for whatever reason, doing what God would call it to do. We aren't able in this moment because of brokenness or sadness, aren't living out who we will one day be with God. And when we think about pleasure and happiness, what it generally is for us is we want just a joy bomb to drop on us. And so we'll pray, God, please help me to win the lottery or help me to pass this test or, you know, just make that happen. And we're just like waiting, hoping that this joy bomb is going to be dropped on us. And though those things can at times make you feel some sense of happiness for a while, what God wants for you is not just for you to receive a joy bomb and to like feel a little bit of happiness for five minutes. God wants you to, from the inside out, become a person who is more and more participating in the joy of God right now. The question then becomes, how is it 
we do this. Richard Foster, in his great book called Celebration of Discipline, said, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of living and thinking. Your thinking helps to set your emotions. What it is that you are thinking about, what it is that your, your heart is on, the things that you continue to roll over again and again in your mind. And it is a decision that we make, what it is that we pay attention to and think about. And to live for higher purposes takes thinking about higher purposes. And to sometimes get outside of the brokenness of our world and the trouble that we're all experiencing is a conscious choice. I'd love for you at home to just smile with me for a minute. Just do a nice big smile. Everybody in here, smile. I'm seeing no smiles because of masks, but just I know deep down you're smiling somewhere. Now, when we smile, when we choose for a minute to just think about something that either makes us laugh or just helps us to feel joy, did you notice that as you smiled, endorphins are released that help you to relieve stress. It acts as a pain reliever. If you think about and dwell on the brokenness of the world and the things that are hard and the things that are difficult for us and just constantly you're there, it's going to be difficult. But every once in a while you step back and you smile and you think, this world isn't how it should be, but I want to participate and join with God to bring about more and more of God's reality to earth. What if you just smile for a minute and celebrate and say, yeah, my life isn't perfect, but I'm going to choose to think about the things that bring me joy. I'm going to choose to participate in the ways that God has called us to. I can't think of perhaps a worse way to do this and to disconnect from God's joy than honestly how most of us live. Because most of us, as we're going to bed, we're getting a last few minutes checking the coronavirus statistics or thinking about email and work and everything that we're going to have to get done tomorrow. We're thinking about like pressing important issues that are on our heart and on our mind. And we perhaps put this on our nightstand and maybe turn it off, maybe not. And then you wake up the next day and you're just right back in it. And you're seeing these things that are causing you fear, causing you to worry, causing you to think about things that are hard or you're comparing your life to everyone else's highlight reel on social media. We aren't doing a great job sometimes stepping out and experiencing the joy that God has for us. Someone that I know and respect in a blog post said that what he and his wife do is they have a bedtime for their phones. They put them away about 8 p.m., put them in a separate room, and they actually use an old school alarm clock. You can find them pretty cheap if you want one. They put them out somewhere, and then the next morning as they wake up, they try to spend their first 
15 to 30 minutes with God in prayer and reading scripture. And then and only then, after they have had that time with God, then are they ready to face the difficulties of the world. And it feels a whole lot different when you're walking into it with God on your side. When you think about God's work and sustaining power in the world. Richard Foster says this, God has established a created order full of good and excellent things. It follows naturally that if we give our attention to those things, next slide for me. There we go. We will become more joy-filled. If we fill our lives with simple good things, we will be joyful. We will be full of joy. What are some simple good things that you can fill your life with? I know during COVID, that's tough. But maybe it's inviting some friends over to a space in your backyard or in your front yard. Maybe it's just having a phone call with somebody you haven't talked to in a while. Maybe it's just spending some time with God thinking about the good things that are in this world. There's a book released in 2017 called The Hacking of the American Mind. And this is not a, a spiritual book at all, but in the book, Robert Lustig, who's the author, he makes the claim that the major problem that we all have is that we've replaced the pursuit of happiness with the pursuit of pleasure. So he says this, if you're told by every TV commercial and everybody you know that you're unhappy, and then if you buy this, you're going to be happy, and you're, you're going to start to believe it. But it doesn't make you happy. It actually makes you unhappy. It works for industry because it gets you to buy more, but it doesn't actually work for us. So Lustig talks about these, these studies and all this research that show that what we are often doing is we are living for these moment-by-moment moment trifling pleasures. And this is not a spiritual or Christian book, but he says we need to seek deeper things in our lives because those things aren't going to give us joy. Your phone doesn't work for you. It works for someone in Silicon Valley who is very, very wealthy because of it. And at the end of his book, Lustig offers four C's to help us get to the deeper things of life. He says, connect, and he recommends being part of a faith community. And again, this is not a Christian book. And then when you are part of that community, you choose to contribute to it. That means financially, like being sacrificial in how you give, being sacrificial in how you give your time. Find ways to cope in healthy ways with the fact that our life is trouble. And he mentions things like prayer and, and reading scripture and developing spiritual disciplines. And then he says, cook. And his recommendations are to have people over and have dinners. And I know during COVID, that's a little bit tough, but cook for yourself. Spend some time putting some ingredients together. Make it a priority that you would spend time with those who are in your quarantine group right now, sharing a meal, because it makes a difference. And at the, toward the end of the book, he makes this, this comparison 
between pleasure and happiness. And I'm going to try to get out of the way because it's on my, my screen over here. But he says that the issue with pleasure is that it's short-lived. It's just a little bit of a hit and it doesn't last. And if you pursue happiness, it's long-lived. It helps to continue to develop in your heart. Pleasure is visceral. It's about just a, a little bit of an emotional hit. When I looked it up, it said part of the visceral nervous system. So that was super helpful. And happiness is ethereal. It's something that is just striking in its beauty. It's transcendent. Pleasure often comes from taking. It's just taking something and eating that piece of cake. And it's great, but it's just you taking. And happiness is in giving and learning to give your life away. Pleasure often is experienced alone. Happiness, more often than not, is experienced in groups. Pleasure is achieved with substances. Happiness is not achieved with substances. Pleasure leads to addiction. Now, happiness is not just, it's not something that you can possibly get addicted to. Addicted to. And as you seek pleasure, dopamine is released which is basically like a dog who is just waiting for a treat, and that's great for a few seconds, but it doesn't necessarily last all that long. And when you seek happiness, serotonin is released. It's a part that, it's an endorphin and hormone that helps us to stabilize our mood, to be less stressed, and to experience joy in our lives. And again, this is not a spiritual book. But Robert Lustig says this is a major problem and we need to live for deeper things. Because our God is a God joy. Oftentimes when you think about tithing to a, a church, we think about this, just giving and being part of the offering. And I think that is an important thing for us all to consider but it's interesting that as you look about a tithe that's talked about in the Old Testament, there's also Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26, that says this about a tithe, which I would argue is the party tithe. So of a 10%, scholars would say, give a 10% to church and, and a faith community that you're a part of. And then another 10%, use the silver to buy whatever you like with it. Cattle, sheep, wine or other fermented drink, if you're not into wine, anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of your Lord God and rejoice. Tell me that that's a God who just doesn't want us to have any fun. God says, take 10% of what you have and just have a party. Get what you want. Get your favorite food. Get a drink that you enjoy just to relax and just enjoy your time with the people that you love and, and make it about a celebration with God. This is what our God is like. The problem is we so often just seek a lesser version. We seek the dopamine hit. We go for pleasure. And we can get addicted to all kinds 
of stuff. And sometimes we can think that God is about limiting us and limiting the possibilities that we have and our experiences, but that is so not true. The problem is when you are addicted to something, whatever it happens to be, you aren't free. When you're addicted to something, you aren't free. God offers you the opportunity to experience a deeper joy. And as we think about what it means to pursue God's spirit and heart on this, think of that scripture that over and over again would be tra- could be translated that Jesus was the happiest and most fulfilled person alive. As we think about what it means to pursue God's spirit and presence, church, this isn't something that God wants from you. This is something that God wants for you. May we understand that relationship with God and God's spirit and presence isn't about a list of don'ts. It's about becoming more and more like Jesus. Slowing down, spending time around people who we deeply love. Now we have the opportunity to take communion together. And think about that, that this very central aspect of our Christian faith was a meal shared by friends. And one of the things that I miss the most about our communion moment is not having you here. We will be taking communion tonight, and we'd love if you are there and able to participate with us because it's so powerful to take it together. But at the very center of our faith was Jesus sharing a meal with his friends. Ironically, friends who were going to let him down very shortly, including Judas. But it was a meal that he shared with friends. May we be people who seek the deeper joy of life. One day it could be said about us, yeah, your your life wasn't perfect and you were not a perfect person. You had so much joy. He or she was one of the happiest people I knew.